0: Our U.S. military and military veterans are our country's greatest assets. But service comes with a price. Post-traumatic stress is our enemy, and our mission today is Operation Healing Heroes. Brought to you by Great Clips.
1: Hey everyone, it's Jay Garstecki, and welcome to another episode of the Operation Healing Heroes podcast, where we document the lives of our U.S. military veterans one story at a time. In addition, we provide resources for veterans and their family members who may be struggling with post-traumatic stress so they can get the help that they absolutely deserve. Be sure to check out our TV show, Operation Healing Heroes, on Discovery Channel, Waypoint TV, wired to fish TV, Amazon Prime, and YouTube. Join me today as we feature Scott Medlin, a United States Marine Corps veteran who served two tours during Operation Iraqi Freedom and then went on to a nearly 15-year law enforcement career. Today, Scott continues to serve as a motivational speaker discussing the importance of mental health, healing, and growth.
0: Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And bye. Sure microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com.
1: Hey, Scott, welcome to the show. I certainly appreciate you taking the time to uh, to, to talk to us today. Oh, thank you, Jay. It's great to be here. Hey, uh, just real quick, I'm just going to let our listeners know that. Um, you joined the uh, military in 2001, you were in from 2001 to 2007. Uh you served two deployments during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh one was in 2003 and the second deployment was in 2005. Uh after that you got out of the military and then you went on to serve for nearly 15 years in law enforcement. Is that that correct? That is. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for your service to our country. Um I always like to start these shows out by just kind of giving our our listeners an idea of what what was life like growing up. Uh, Did you come from a military background? What led you into the military? So if you don't mind, can we start there?
2: Oh, absolutely. No, I grew up in a a strict household, but it wasn't because of military discipline. It was just because my parents uh, really valued discipline and obeying the rules and doing the right thing, and uh, they enforced it very well. (laughs) So I... So much that I literally did not have my first sip of alcohol until I was 21 years old. <laughs> really? I, I, yeah. But but my granddad on my dad's side was in the military. So that was a little bit of exposure to someone who had been in the military. What, what the, the game-changing moment was in high school for me, I did uh, some yard work for a uh, Marine Corps colonel. Uh, he hired me for a day. And he, of course, I mean, I was 15, so... I was two years away from the the age where you could enlist. And he said, Hey, have you ever thought about what you want to do with your future? And I <laughs> said, no, not really. And he launched into the Marines and, and he did 28 years in the Marines, uh, full, full bore uh, retired uh, as a colonel. I was really impressed with him. I just, I was so impressed with everything and all these stories he had. And then the next year I was in uh, U.S. history class at, at the high school and my a U.S. history teacher was not only a lifelong friend. However, he was a former Navy corpsman who worked with the Marines and served alongside the Marines in Vietnam. Oh. Uh, and he talked all about that, obviously, during the U.S. history course. And then he had a Marine Corps recruiter come in and speak. Whoa. I was sold right, right then and there. I was yeah. sold. Uh, based, on bo- based on those
1: three gentlemen, I was sold. That's really cool. So where was life growing up? Uh, where, did, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, North Carolina
2: and uh, 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 I mean I had a great childhood in the sense that a lot of friends lived in a good neighborhood where we could go out and play in, in the woods and explore and uh, we played uh, cops and robbers, all those good old classical games and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, all the time outside playing football, basketball just out outdoor time was great and I also grew up uh, with my parents pretty much telling me, you, you have to earn everything you want. Like, don't don't expect it to be handed to you You need to earn it. So when I went into the Marines, it, the the whole you have to work to what you want to earn that it was it was not a strange concept to me. And I'm grateful for that.
1: I love it. Um, as a, a dad with an 18-year-old son, who obviously times are changed here. I mean, I'm 51 years old, so I grew up, uh, what, late 70s, early 80s. And like you said, going outside mm-hmm. and playing. We got home from school, we threw our backpack down, we ran outside, yeah. and we didn't come home until it was time to, for dinner, right? And and I mean, that. Yes. I, I guess that generation is is pretty much gone. I mean, it's, it's sad because I live in a community here where you can look outside and after school, you don't see kids playing outside anymore. And I think just keeping people outside there's uh there's a lot to be said for that so to to hear that you were did a lot of stuff in the outdoors is is great um did you have any siblings
2: yes uh two younger brothers so i'm i'm one of three boys and my middle brother and i actually to fast forward just a little bit uh, my middle brother and i were actually in iraq at the same time in the same unit uh in, in 2005 so oh. that was great to actually have family deployed with me. <laughs> yeah. And then and then my youngest brother, he went into the army as a commissioned officer and um he did his I think it was four years and then he got out. So, oh, so all, all three, three of us went in. All three of us went into the military, yes.
1: But dad wasn't in the military or mom wasn't in the military? No
2: no and uh, at first there was some apprehension i'll never forget i was i was 15 i was looking on the internet and it was real slow internet you know the dial up modem mm-hmm. and all that and and the website was slowly loading and my mom of course was like what is my teenage son looking at you know <laughs> she has every right not to trust me at that age <laughs> yeah, right. and and uh, well the marine corps website comes up she's like oh no 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 no, no. that's not happening <laughs> i was like oh come on <laughs> but once we got past that I mean, they, they were very supportive of our decision to go in. All, all three of
1: us. And did you guys go in roughly the same time, or?
2: I went in in two thousand one. We're, we're spaced uh, two years apart, so two thousand one, two thousand three, and then two thousand five or six is when my youngest brother went in.
1: Okay, so when you went in in two thousand one, mm-hmm. was it pre nine eleven?
2: Actually, it was. And my very first day, I was at Paris Island june july and august of 2001 terrific time of the year to be there (laughs) and then uh my first day reporting back to combat training from boot leave was 9 11 2001 like we got off the bus for combat training at camp lejeune and i'll never forget the lance corporal who uh, for lack of a better word greeted us off the bus he said a plane just hit the world trade center and, of course, we thought it was an accident like a lot of people. That's the initial thought a lot of people had yeah. until we were able to get in front of the TV in the, in the bus station and, and see, like, oh, shoot, th- this, this is more than what it is. So needless to say, w- when you land your first day in combat training and there's a terrorist attack on our nation, it, it totally changed oh, the yeah. entire setting. It totally changed everything. Because my plan was to be in the Reserves go through college without any interruption and then become commissioned and served
1: however long I
2: wanted to. All that changed uh, through, throughout the next six years I was in.
1: Wow. That's pretty amazing. So um, you went into obviously the the Marine Corps and you said your brother, was he in the Marine Corps also? Your younger brother, the one that you served or uh, was he, on a deployment he, with? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was in
2: the Marine It's kind of funny. He had some of the same drill instructors that, that I had. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, it was weird visiting him that, uh, after he had gotten out of Paris Island. We went back to Paris Island, and some of these drill instructors who had yelled at both of us were all of a sudden like, Hey, what's up, guys? How you doing? <laughs> it
1: was odd. but yes, So you guys didn't he, go he in was, on like, the buddy system or nothing then, huh? <laughs> no, 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 no. We're two years apart. Okay. So I went in,
2: I went in my after, right after my senior year in high school, and he went in two years later after he graduated high school.
1: Did you ever have any conversations with him to say if if you going into the military and he had have ever had an effect on him going in? Was it one of the reasons that he went in, or looking up to you?
2: I think so. I, I think so. It, he saw how much it changed me, yeah, uh, and and how much more discipline and enthusiasm and and um, drive I had just to to work towards things and and have confidence towards things, and also serving the country. I, I think yeah. people need to serve. I th- I believe. I believe in Maybe not mandatory service, but people really need to get back to serving in the middle. That
1: should Amen. be a very high priority, in my opinion. Amen. I agree with that 100. percent I mean, I think our, our world would be a much better place. And I, I'm, I'm for, I didn't serve, so this is coming from someone who didn't serve. So I'm not sitting here throwing stones. But that being said, my my grandfather served, my father served, my brother served. Um, I didn't serve only because it was one of those things where my life path didn't lead me down that way. Right? I ended up getting out of school and getting a job that was really good, and I stayed there for twenty six years, right? I stayed in and and so it just didn't take me that way. But for me, this is my way of being able to give back and honor the men and women who did serve. But I do agree with you. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot to be said from a disciplinary standpoint and and just a direction standpoint for people. I mean, if if nothing else, right. I, I, I've, I guarantee you, I don't know that I've ever spoken to a vet who hasn't said that some of the disciplines they learned in the military they still execute today in life. You know what I mean?
2: Oh, yeah, 110 percent, 110 percent.
1: And I heard a video
2: of of a sergeant major uh, the other day, and he was talking about the necessity of patriotism and wanting to defend the Constitution. And he said, that's what my Marines are doing. And and, I mean, that those two words, patriotism, Constitution. Oh, my gosh. That that just needs to be front and center of people's attention. You know, Americans, we we have to value that stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I'm a big proponent of people. Uh, joining the military and i'm and I'm glad my brothers and i did mm-hmm. uh i know people had mixed opinions about the, the wars that have been going on lately but I, I i'm still all i'm still all for people joining and serving
1: i'm with you on that and, and like they say once a marine always a marine right you're you will be a marine to the day you die
2: yeah as long as you're uh uh you know, not dishonorably discharged. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <That's
1: my opinion. laughs> Going back to that patriotism thing. I mean, I- I'm a, a- a huge advocate of it. I mean, I'm I'm probably a little bit obsessed with it. And what I mean by that is everything I have is red, white, and blue. And I just I bleed red, white, and blue. But that being said, I mean, obviously with the bumps and bruises that this country has served over the last I don't know six, eight, ten, twelve, maybe even fifteen years, whatever. But that being said, we still live in the greatest country in the world. I mean, bar none. I mean, for us to be able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, it's. I always tell my my son, can't means won't, right? Um, you say you can't do something, it means you won't do something because we have the ability to do whatever. We set our minds to, and uh, that being said, you know, you think about the the patriotism. You go back to patriotism and, and the amount of patriotism this country had after nine eleven. I mean, you remember the days, the weeks, the months following uh, the World Trade Center bombings, and, and we all know where we were if we're old enough, right? I mean, it was one of those things where we're never going to forget it. But that being said, there were no. Uh, whites, there were no blacks, there were no Hispanics, there were no uh, religion. You know, you know what I mean? It was, we were all one, yeah. we were Americans and, and we all yep. flew flags on our cars. And we were, we were, it was the most solidarity that I've ever seen in this country. And, and it's sad to think that in just the 20 short years since 9-11, how far we've come away from that, you know what I mean? And, and so, I don't know, man, it, it hurts me to say that, but it, it's the truth, unfortunately.
2: Oh, I echo what you said. I mean, I, I, I agree with you 100%. It's absolutely heartbreaking, but at the same time, I will, I will also never,
3: uh,
2: I know we have our issues here in America, but, but my gosh, w- what I saw in Iraq, I, I can't, I can't hate this country. Right? I just can't, right? I'm not I mean, going to. And people that say, that people that just spread these lies about it. I'm like, I, I can't stand for that. I'm not going to waver on my opinion based on what I've seen. We live in a very good country. And I know, as cliche as it sounds, seriously, if you think that it's some horrible, oppressive nation, then just leave. Go. Right. I mean, go. and, and like, Let me take you to where I saw, and you'll be begging to come back.
1: Yeah, amen to that, brother. And and the thing is, is that, and, and this is the truth, and and unfortunately, you know, a lot of Americans, we live our lives in this country, and we know no different. So therefore, we take this freedom for, that we have for granted, right? And and if people just took the time to understand that, you know, one, freedom isn't free. It was the, the, the men and women who served in World War II that provided our freedom for us. But number two, if you've never left this country, and, and I'm not talking going to, to Canada to go fishing or go to Mexico to vacation. I'm talking talking about truly leaving this country and like you did deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan and see the how people live. uh, You know what I mean? And and how the government controls income and doesn't allow you to do what you want to do and say what you want to say and be who you want to be. You you truly, unfortunately, you don't know any better. And so you become complacent and you think that this is the norm and 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 you start, I don't know, spewing hatred across this country. Like, you know what I mean? And, And and rightfully so you know you have the ability to do so because you have your freedoms to be able to do so but it was the men and women like you who provided that freedom to them so sometimes it's a tough pill to swallow but man I tell you what it's uh this is the greatest country in the world and and we're blessed to be able to to be here and do what we do amen and we cannot take freedom for granted that is for darn sure no i i agree with that um so hey thanks for letting us know you know about life growing up uh in our next segment i'm going to take a, a quick break but in our next segment i just wanted to, to see if you could give me an idea of what uh, life in the military was like um i'm sure there's some memorable things regarding boot camp or you know some of the deployments that you're on and um yeah if you don't mind in our next segment i think uh, we'll go ahead and uh, cover some of that information does that sound good sounds good to me all right we'll be right back
0: This week's nonprofit of the week is Boulder Crest Foundation. Boulder Crest understands trauma and stress. We know that traumatic stress is debilitating. Our mission is to help struggling veterans, first responders, and their families rediscover hope, purpose, and a belief in a future that is truly worth living. Our team at Boulder Crest uses the science of post-traumatic growth to train participants through a proven process of transformation. We transform pain into purpose and struggle into strength. Visit our website at www.boldercrest.org for more information. And we're back. We're talking to uh,
1: Scott Medlin. Scott, again, thanks for sharing, uh, you know, early childhood with us and what led you into the military. It's an inspiration. And uh, again, thank you for your service to our country. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, life in the military, if you don't mind. Uh, What was it like You know, I'm sure I couldn't even imagine what it'd be like once you sign up, and you know you got to go to boot camp. Uh, How do you mentally and physically prepare for for what's in front of you?
2: You push past the fear. That's basically what you have to do. I remember two days before I shipped out to Paris Island, I was—I mean, uh, uh, might as well share it. I don't care, whatever. I I was in tears. I was like, "Did I make the right decision? Oh my gosh!" and then uh, two days later, I'm, I go through the MEP station, and finally we get on the van uh, to uh, go to Paris Island. And I'll never forget, we pulled into the gate, and then we pulled around to the receiving office, and there was the drill center coming to greet us. And someone yelled in the van, How
3: much crack was
2: I smoking when I stopped talking?
1: To <laughs> what so, the hell did I get myself right, into?
2: Yeah but right then and there i just said to myself you've got to trust this process <laughs> so many others have done it before i was like you just got to trust this process i mean i i knew i wasn't alone god is with us all the time and i just was like okay we we've, we've got to do it uh but they they at that time in 2001 were were my experience was they were very good at letting you know just how quickly uh It honestly did not matter what you did leading up to that point. Mm -hmm. Like they would say, I I don't care if you were the star football player. I don't care if you were the worst athlete, or I don't care what you did. It doesn't matter. We're going to mold you into be Marines who work together. And that's what was really impressive to me. But yet at the same time, man, did they really knock us down. I mean, it was just – I mean, it was like here I am thinking – well, I've done this before, I've done that before. It didn't matter. No, you're it all starting on a clean
1: slate, right? You're all at an even level. It, exactly.
2: Yep, yep, exactly. Uh, and then I realized really quick all the things in life I had taken for granted. Even something as simple as sitting on a couch. I'm, I just <laughs> took it all for granted. And Paris Island woke me up to that very much. Uh, but I really also liked how it opened me up to things that most people frown upon and they would never challenge themselves to do, even though it could very well help them and change their lives for the better, such as waking up very early uh, to get your morning workout in rather than going through the day and saying, well, I'll get it in in the evening. And then you're tired in the evening and you're like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And then that just gets easier. Not to exercise. Uh, think things like uh, uh, just getting done what you need to get done. And you have to have the discipline to do it. That's really a lot of what I learned down there at Paris Island. And in addition to, learning how to be a Marine ready for combat at any given moment.
1: So they say that the uh, the individuals that you serve with become almost like family to you. Is that your instance too?
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, my boot camp platoon, we were, we were a little rough. I, I, every week we heard about how we were the worst, and we honestly didn't get along very well. I'm not in touch with any guys from boot camp. It's a big life regret, but there are some who I was in Iraq with who I, I still speak to to this day, and there are some who I haven't been in touch with, but I know if I reached out to them, it would be like there's no, there was no time in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, was, there was one about a year ago. He and I had spoken in several years, and we, we finally reconnected. And I mean, we talked and talked and talked. It was, there, there was no in between. It, it was amazing to me. And it was all because of the, just the complete, what felt like hell at times that we went
1: through. hmm and that's it. I yeah, it mean, really
2: brings you together.
1: You you literally have to trust the the man or the woman standing beside you or next to you because they trust you just as much as you trust them, from what I understand. And it's uh I mean it's important and, and that's a bond that you really can't build in civilian life. I shouldn't say that. I mean I I guess different, you know, different jobs could can, can you you could do that you know maybe even a police officer but that being said there's not many things in our civilian life where you depend upon that person so heavily you know standing to your left or the right you know what i mean and so i think yeah. that that's just amazing and like you said you can go months if not years without speaking and and pick up like like you know you, you left off yesterday
2: Oh yeah, I, and that's one thing I've really enjoyed, and I've I've always enjoyed reconnecting with m- Marines that uh that I was alongside with for sure.
1: That's cool. So any uh any boot camp stories or anything you want to share with that was fun, uh, whatever. Any upsetting, sad, <laughs> anything as far as the the boot camp stuff the stuff goes.
2: Uh, boot camp was just one of those where you talk about just roll with the punches and do what you're told to do as fast as you can do it just so you can get through it. But yet at the same time, they're building you up. And that's, if you're willing to listen and push yourself, I I was really amazed at how much I changed over those three months. So I don't know if any of your audience or people maybe wanting to get into the military and particularly in the Marines, it's, it's going to be challenging, but I mean, me personally, I never grew and in in a good way uh, through easy times. It's always been through the challenges and Paris Island was definitely challenging. There's, there's stories for days. I, I think what got on my nerves the most was whenever they would say, we kind of start like the evening routine for lack of a better phrase for you. Brush your teeth, take your showers, get ready for, 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 you know, the, um, I'm, I'm losing my military terms already, but get ready for, for to go to sleep for the night and, and just 80, 80, guys in, in, not enough shower heads, not enough sinks, and we're all crammed in there. Oh my God, just got on my nerves. <laughs> or, or they said all of or we or we'd meet as a as a company for for a period of instruction, so there'll be like four or five platoons meeting as a company for a period of instruction, and then they say, "You've got five, ten minutes to take a a head make a head call break, go go you gotta go you, and you will be back in time, and we're all just you know all like four or five of us are in the same Port John. It's just like,
3: oh my God,
2: this is ridiculous. Like, all that, all that stuff just to kind of tear us down and just knock our egos down. They're, they were very good about doing that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I mean, one time, this was, this was over the halfway point boot camp. The Joe instructor finally got to a point where he said, you know what, I'm done yelling at you. I'm done. He said, you're going to polish your boots until I say stop, and I'm not going to yell at you one bit. And for three hours – We polished the boots, and he just walked up and down the squad bay, the center of the squad bay, with a golf ball in his hand, just bouncing it up and down. I went nuts that night. I mean, you would think that it was the the drill instructors in your face and all this kind of stuff. No, that actually kind of fueled me to to continue going and to pay attention and do what they say. But that right there when he made us polish for three hours, I mean – we all got in our own heads yeah and then they did the same thing a few weeks later uh at, at that time it was called uh, a line i think it was called a line they uh they made us clean our rifles but we had to hold them in front with our arms extended oh. and we had to brush the rifles and let me tell you it's all, i mean it's less than it, when it's broken down it's not a lot of weight but when you're holding your arms out oh, yeah. straight and straight you're brushing it, it it takes a toll on your shoulders but they were like no Keep going, keep don't stop. We're not going to yell at you, but you will continue to clean this way.
1: <laughs> just stuff like that. It's as much <laughs> of a mental challenge as it is a physical challenge.
2: It, yes, yes, it is, uh, and it's always funny after the fact. I mean, during it, it's like, oh, oh yeah, my gosh, awful. this sucks. Yeah. But me and other Marines, there's always those boot camp stories where you just laugh at like some of the stupid things you did, <laughs> uh, and and some of the not like. Not like they made us what they made us do was stupid, but like some of the mistakes we made along the way. It was like, wow, was I really that dumb in that moment? Uh but like a like a I don't I know of a Marine who in the very beginning they said, you you better get in the head and those canteens better be full when you come back out. He was so amped up in tunnel vision that he thought they meant fill your canteens up with pee. Oh, so he no. peed into his canteen. All the others, all the others, did the right thing. Got it filled up the sink, but
1: stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell me they made him drink it.
3: I don't know what happened after that.
1: Oh boy!
2: (laughs) But anyway, um, but it, it. yeah. But I mean, don't get me wrong, uh, boot camp was an experience I'll never forget, but
1: I'm very glad I was very glad when it was over. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. So coming out of boot camp, uh, where were you where did you get stationed and uh, what was your MOS?
2: Uh did uh report in for combat training on nine eleven and then spent a few months out at 29 Palms, California for MOS school. And 29 Palms is a base where uh it's a character builder living out there because there's nothing around the base and the weather. Well, it's the desert. I'm not a big fan of the desert, Yeah. but, uh, spent a few months out there. And then I went to reserve status so I could attend college uh, full time. And, um, but then a uh, year and a half later got activated for the first deployment, uh, for operation Iraqi freedom. And so we got there, I think it was mid to late February when we got there in Kuwait prior to the invasion.
1: What was that like when you were coming in? I've spoke to several veterans that just said that you know you could never prepare yourself for it. You know what I mean? Landing in Kuwait, it was almost like you just couldn't prepare yourself.
2: Yeah, you could definitely refresh, like say, okay, I've learned this, I know this, I'm, I'm and you could psych yourself up uh, and just say like, I can do this, I can do this, and I, and I prayed a lot, but. I'll never forget when they. I was on a team of a uh, Humvee drivers that was going to get some Humvees up to the camp where we were, and one of the sergeants said, "All right, look. I know we don't have any bullets, but the Kuwaiti police are going to es- help escort us along with the MPs, the military police. That the, on our on the U.S. military police, they're going to be patrolling as well because along these." Uh, convoy routes in Kuwait, there have been people to take pop shots at the convoys mm-hmm. right then and there. My heart sank. I was like, man, dang it. This is real.
1: Yep.
2: And not that I knew, not that I thought it was going to be fantasy mm-hmm. land and that war is a video game. Absolutely not. It's just, that's when it hit me for the first time.
1: Well, there's a and, difference uh, between feeling it and thinking it, right? I mean, that's... Exactly, exactly. I, I felt it.
2: And I remember also thinking, why are they not giving us bullets <laughs> to defend ourselves if this happens? That, I was kind of enraged at that, actually. Yeah. But, uh, but, but anyway, uh, yeah, so there was, that, there was that initial feeling right there. And then the night of them saying the invasion has started, I was still in Kuwait at a headquarters battalion, just uh, manning the radios. Uh, Very, very uh, different night in the sense that they said, all right, all the lights we've had on at night, all the flashlights, just everyone go dark, completely dark, because there were rumors of, uh, well, there were, quote, intel reports of the Scud missiles coming over that Saddam was launching. And then also, I don't know if these were intel reports, talking about, Possibly kamikaze pilots, so they wanted the bases and the camps all completely blacked out, so that uh-huh. they wouldn't know where to where to crash the planes. That's, it, that's an experience you that you, you can't put it into words when you when you hear that kind of stuff, and then uh, knowing that there are other Marines out there going in going into a country, not knowing how it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, it's uh it it can it can take a lot on the mind, but but that's when you have to. Have a good unit, that's when you have to be confident in yourself in your training. Mm-hmm. And I was confident in our training. We were Marines, and we had the right mentality. There were some units I ran into in other branches of the military. I was like, man, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, it, was, it was definitely an emotional and mental roller coaster for sure, and physical as well because the sleep was on and off, stuff like that.
1: And that was your first deployment in 2003? That was the first deployment, yes. I mainly stayed
2: in Kuwait on the first deployment. Uh, I punched into Iraq, into Iraq one time, southern Iraq for a resupply mission. And I was so glad to get off the base. My gosh, I was like, please send me into danger. I don't care. Just get me out of this camp.
1: <laughs> really? And you were <laughs> and a Iraq. radio operator?
3: Yeah.
2: I was a radio operator, but the very first deployment, I was only a Lance Corporal and I was just assigned to a headquarters battalion. So it was a lot of the kind of in the rear with the gear kind of thing. And I honestly didn't like it at all um, but because I was on there Radio for?
1: Watch or do what? How long were you there for?
2: Both deployments were around six months. Okay. Yep. Uh, so in the Marines, they don't send you for a year, year and a half like the Army does. They, mm-hmm. they send you home, they, they send you, send you home, and then bring you right back <laughs> after a little break. That, that was kind of how it was with the Marines. Shorter, shorter deployments, but you definitely stood a good chance of going back.
1: Yeah, and so your first deployment in two thousand three um, was it what you thought it? I mean, was it what you thought after you got back? And, and was it fairly? Well, I don't want to say was it uneventful or, or I mean, for you well,
2: in I the think. first in the first few days, weeks of the invasion, it was a little eventful in the sense that there were Scud missiles. There was a, mm-hmm. I mean, heck, there was a Scud missile that flew right over our camp. Uh, So we had to be, we had to be careful of those uh, incoming scud missiles, but the Patriot missile system defending the camp did a pretty good job of intercepting them. And when they would say, you know, bunker, bunker, or uh, whatever else to get us in the bunkers to minimize any kind of uh, damage, that the, the, you could hear the Patriots just going off in the background, doing their thing. Uh, So that was a good feeling to know, but, Overall, compared to how my deployment in 2005 was, yeah, 2003 was kind of uneventful. More of me just learning how to do my job as a radio operator more proficiently. Mm-hmm. And uh, now don't get me wrong. When I was on Radio Watch and I was able to get information from the on the radio from the units who were in Iraq, it was good to bring that information. They needed headquarters to know about. So there was a purpose. I didn't feel like I, I was... I didn't feel like it was a pointless role, Mm -hmm. but I'm the kind of guy that would rather travel around, not do the same thing every day. So it was just more of a personality issue. But it was definitely important that we have radio operators communicating with those who are forward uh, to relay back to headquarters what they need and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So Mm
3: -hmm.
1: after your deployment in 2003, you come back um, and I know you had mentioned you were reserve and they they activated you. So uh, did you you go back into reserve status then after 2003 or you stay active duty?
2: no, I went back to reserve status and went back to college. That was always a goal like when, when i when I get pulled out of college there's there's no doubt I'm going back and I mean fortunately, the university where I went it was great. It was absolutely great readmitting me. Uh, sometimes I would pick up classes that i had to 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 uh, that I wasn't able to attend stuff like that. It, mm-hmm. very good process. I will give the university credit on that. I go back to you and i I go back to uh, the university and i'm not looking at that place the same ever again. I'm like, this is paradise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get stressed about exams anymore. I didn't really. Yeah. I, I was just having a blast and not in a rowdy, yeah. uncontrollable way. Just I would organize, capture the flag events on campus. I would just get to know as many people as I could. But unfortunately, at the same time, I was dealing with the inner battle of having an adjustment problem. Mm-hmm. As much fun as I was having I was still having an adjustment problem in the sense of uh, kind of thinking about the deployment mm-hmm. and with the thinking of the deployment came the negative emotions that were attached to it and I would I would kind of relive the the negativity and and therefore the negative emotions would create well negative results whether it just meant like not wanting to study or, I mean, who, who doesn't want to study? Yeah, who, right. who, uh, you know, like the, the, not the, the there would be the lethargy and, there, and stuff like that. And, well, that and, affected hopelessness. You
1: mentally. Yeah. I mean,
2: yeah, yeah. Hope there'd be some hopelessness, uh, bitterness, negative thinking. I really had to push past that. But for the most part, when I was busy at the university, I was, it was great. But then comes spring of 2004, and I'm finally going through a full year of college. And they say the Marines are going back. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Jay, I knew, I, I knew right then and there, I said, I'm great. I'm going back to Iraq. It's only a matter of time. Mm-hmm. And when the first Marines went back in spring of 2004, uh, we, we had our, our drill uh, and, and the company commander of us at the time said, well, I'm not volunteering any of us to go back, but, and we were like, here it comes. Uh-huh. And, and he he said, yeah, we, we could go back. And all of us looked at all of us who had been there in 2003 just looked at each other and said, OK, well, this this is going to happen. And uh-huh. we're going to just we'll just we'll just do it. Uh, and and so I'm home for a little over a year. And then in January of 2005, I'm still in college. I get back to my dorm room and I notice uh, I have a voicemail on my phone because, you know, that's 2005. So mm-hmm. landlines still kind of existed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it was a voicemail from my uh, platoon commander. And he's, I'm a platoon sergeant. And he said, uh, Hey, Corporal Medlin, just wanted to let you know that more radio operators from the company have been activated. Uh, you're being reactivated, and you'll need to report in uh, for, for whatever date. I can't even remember. And then right after that, I called my dad and I said, Dad, I, I got to go back. It's. <clears throat> I just got the call about it, and he said, "Okay." He said, "Well, we we'll do this. We will do it," and that that's how that's so. Two thousand five rolls in, and uh, the second deployment came came about.
1: Hmm. So let me ask you: um, you had mentioned having some uh, bouts with mental health, whether it's PTS. You know, obviously mean, it was PTS. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing right. And after two thousand three, did you ever get a chance to work on any of that stuff prior to deploying again in two thousand five? Like, what I mean, work on it. um, you know, be able to, to, to get any help for it or was it just something that you buried and just lived out? No, I, I, I can't remember. No, 2003, 2004.
2: No, no. I was, I was uh, going about my life and uh, just staying busy with people who I really enjoyed being around. So I think it kind of kept me at bay because I really was uh, healthy in a, in a social aspect. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the, I mean, I know this now, but one of the greatest things that can bring happiness to a person is having strong relationships and being uh, uh, social, like having people in your life and having good bonds with people. That actually uh, has many health benefits. Yep. So I was, that, was, that was my getaway. That was my ability to cope uh, through the social aspect of being in a great university with a lot of fun people to be around. 2005, though, totally different story.
1: Yeah. So you get into, uh, did you go back to Kuwait or?
2: No, went, uh, only went to Kuwait for maybe a day or two while they figured out how to fly us into Iraq. 2005 was in the Anbar province of Iraq, which is where most of the Marines were who were deployed there at the time. Uh, so I was, att- I was attached to a unit at Al-Assad Air Base and uh, my brother had already been there for maybe a month and a half prior to me getting there. Uh, so when, when I finally got there, I was asleep. He was out on a convoy uh, or, or I think he was out actually getting back from a trip for R&R because he had had a bad experience on a convoy. And they were like, we need to get you away for a little bit. Get your mind reset. Anyway, he uh, I was sleeping and he woke me up because <laughs> uh, we were excited to see each other. And we gave each other a hug and then went back to sleep. And uh,
1: there, there went the uh, that started the 2005 deployment. Wow. So how old are you at this point?
2: Let's see, 2005, I was uh, 22, I believe. Wow,
1: still a kid, man. Mm-hmm. And so your, your brother's oh, two yeah. years younger than you. He's in his twi- he's 19, he, 20 years old. Uh-huh. He,
2: he was 19, 20 years old.
1: Oh, yeah. Lot, whenever whenever these big wars happen, most of the people
2: fighting them for, they're, they're yeah, 18, Young, 19, 20, early 20s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's crazy. And, and I find it kind of funny, actually, Jay, because I, I would look at the captains and the majors. as not old, but very well seasoned in life. And I'm looking back now. I'm almost forty, and I'm like, man, they were in their early thirties. You know? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. You thought they were old then?
2: <laughs> I know. It turns out it was only the like the three star, four star generals that would visit us. They were the ones with some age on them. And even then, they were, you know, they were they were late forties, early fifties. They they didn't have that much age on. Them. They weren't like elderly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Uh, No, when a lot of the military is very young people, which is absolutely important, why it's important for the teaching of discipline, self-reliance, teamwork, the instant willingness to obey all orders, uh, uh, all ethical orders, but also small unit leadership and accountability. I mean, I'm repeating all this stuff I learned in the Marines, and they stressed it hard. Mm. And that's why I think that I'm not opposed to like 17, 18, 19-year-olds being in there because one, you're in a unit. You don't have like an individual freedom thing going on like you do when you're a police officer. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, it's it very important. And it's just amazing how many young people were there. Wow.
1: Just real quick, how long had it been since you had seen your brother before you actually seen him in Iraq?
2: It had been a few months because he was activated either late December, or early January. He was activated early January. I got there late February. So Okay. So yeah, it was, it was roughly two, two months. Okay. And uh, like I said, I mean, he, he woke me up and we gave each other a big hug. Uh, it was just great to see him. And actually we weren't originally going to be in the same unit. Uh, I got orders to be at, I think if I remember correctly, Alta Air Base and I, I didn't pitch a fit, but I, I asked very firmly to a higher up who was in charge. I said, my brother's over there. why can't we be together? My family's not opposed to it as long as we're not stupid. Like we're not Mm going to leave the base in the same Humvee with the chance of it getting hit by an IED and we both end up dead. We're not going to get stupid, but it makes no sense why some other radio operator can't go to al Air Base while I fill that the new radio operator spot in Mm Al-Assad. Fortunately, the chain of command did some, did some work and we were able to, uh being the same unit
1: that's cool they made that happen had, had you gotten any intel from your brother prior to you arriving um about what it was like there or no
2: oh yeah we've been in touch and he said it was rough he yeah. he, he said certain roads were very dangerous uh small arms fire mortar fire ieds he said it's all very real hmm. and in fact uh, one, uh, just before we got there, a warrant officer with the company, one of the convoy commanders, he, uh, he, he had died from the IED explosion. It injured everyone in the vehicle, but he, uh, everyone else in the vehicle, but he had passed away. Oh. So I knew it was very real what we were getting into. Huh.
1: So fast forward into that deployment. Um, this is the one where you actually go outside the wire you said, right?
2: Yes. I was, uh, the radio operator for the recovery missions. So whenever a vehicle, uh, related to our unit or one that needed to be recovered out there. Uh, unfortunately, that had been uh, hit by an IED or whatever the case was. Uh, I was the radio operator for the recovery team that would go out with a wrecker and a few military police units to go get the vehicle. And I saw all kinds of Humvees that were just in horrible shape. Hmm. And I saw uh, craters in the road from where the bomb had gone off. And by the time we got there, all that was left was equipment. It wasn't people, but just the thought of knowing somebody was in this vehicle. And, and it, it, was, it, it, it was sad. It, it, it was sad. But, um, so I did the, the recovery missions, and I also made it a point to go out in these convoys that a lot of my radio operators were going on. Because I was, at that t- at, um, early end of the second deployment, I got promoted meritoriously to sergeant. And I was uh, thrilled about that and felt really blessed about that. And uh, so a lot of the radio operators who worked with me uh, were assigned to convoy teams. And these, by the end of the deployment, they did over 60 convoys. I mean, my hat's off to them to this day. That's a lot of work. Sure is. So I went on at least 20 to 25 of these convoys just to make sure I could get out there and see and I wouldn't want to tell them something that I myself wasn't willing to do. So I, no. I literally volunteered to go on these convoys, <clears throat> or uh, filled in if if one was sick or or couldn't go. I would go on them. And then there were two convoys in particular that I I asked the military police if I could go in with them in the scouting unit, the the two cars that go ahead. And uh, I, I was I was lucky. They said yes. Like I teamed with the military police to go out on. On the, the in the like the front lines, yeah, for lack of a better phrase.
3: Yeah, that's yeah, front line. Yep. Tip of the spear. and
2: uh, so they, I watched them scout the road, whatever they needed help with, whether it was searching a vehicle or or you know watching people as they did their thing. That they they told me what to do. I didn't mind. I, I loved working with them. It was a good experience. But um, uh, but yeah, I mean it's just in two thousand five during these convoys though. One thing that comes to mind that I have to mention is the the, the fact that every single bump in the road. Uh, when you see trash on the side of the road, it just goes through your mind. Is this it? Because the IEDs were, 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 were putting potholes and, on trash on the side of the road. They disguised them. And still to this day, if I see trash on the road, my mind thinks IED, or is it what's going to happen? It's and crazy. we had to have this mentality. But we had to have that mentality. Mm-hmm. We couldn't get complacent. Anything that looks suspicious they would, they would sometimes, st- I remember one time we stopped a whole entire convoy because the military police officer up ahead, he was one of the best MPs I ever met. Uh, he, he said stop because he saw something that looked like what could have been an IED and, and a bomb. It was a suspicious object, but they didn't, they couldn't get close enough to c- tell what it was. So finally, uh, the, uh, EOD units came out there and it ended up being a trailer hitch. Hmm. But it's yeah. just you have to be so careful because they were so well disguised and it was a really crappy feeling because wars kind of up i guess wars up until vietnam and, and even even then you kind of knew who the enemy was right. like we didn't know what the enemy was doing we didn't know who they were we're riding down these truck stops riding past these truck stops and there's a ton of people outside looking at us you just don't know who's got what mm-hmm. what their intentions are those are really crappy feelings sometimes.
1: Yeah, on these can, uh, can identify on, on these the convoys. Enemy. I mean, that's it. It just adds a whole nother layer of of complication to to the entire deployment and the entire war. I mean, for that matter. And that's that's the thing that you just said something that that echoes with me. That I, I interviewed another uh, gentleman in season one of my TV show, um, uh, Eric Hill, who still struggles today. But he said the exact same thing you did. He said, "I can't." To this day, I can't drive down the roof. I see like a trash bag on the side of the highway, it freaks me out. And he goes, and I know I'm home. I know I'm safe. I know that that trash bag is, is just someone's debris that flew yep. out of their car or vehicle. And and then the same thing with overpasses and, and viaducts. He said, I have a hard time with those things. And I'm thinking to myself, yep. you know, this is a prison sentence for the rest of your life. I mean, it's not about necessarily, I mean, the, the physical wounds are horrible, right? But it's these mental wounds that these men and women now come back with. And, and have to live with day in and day out for the rest of their lives. And, and it's sad. It's, it's sad. And that's why you are the true heroes of this country. I mean, and, and I say it every day, but it's the reality. Um, whenever I get a chance to speak, um, it's not the athletes. It's not Hollywood. It's, it's the men and women who served our country that are true heroes. Back to your uh, your time in the military. Again, thank you for your service and, and your brothers too. I mean, it, it really, it means a lot to, to us in our country. Um, anything regarding that that second deployment in 2005 or anything more that you'd like to to share with that?
2: In June of 2005, I was on a convoy where I was in the back as the assistant radio operator for a very short convoy from al Air Base to Haditha Dam, which was not a very long trip compared to how long the others were. Uh, We made a left onto a road, and everything had been going fine and quiet. We made a left, and all of a sudden, I heard boom, and my legs were thrusted to the left towards the center of the vehicle, As I was sitting in the back right. And I thought, what in the world? And then we all started looking towards the center of the vehicle, assuming we had just been hit by an IED, and and the blast went up through the vehicle. That's where we looked and we noticed really fast. It was all still intact and we all start yelling at each other. Are you okay? Are you okay? And then all of a sudden another called boom goes off. And, uh, and then another one And the, the assistant convoy commander in front of me in, sitting in the front passenger seat, he says, it's mortar fire. It's mortar fire. We got to keep moving. Unfortunately, the truck in front of us hit the brakes. He stopped. And these things are coming down on us and they are less than 15 yards away. Oh. It's a miracle to this day. We survived it. And the, there's, there's the uh, radio operator in front, in the front of the convoy to this day, swears to him. He's like, I don't know how y'all survived that. Cause he looked back when we, when we radioed to everyone to keep moving.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, yeah, it was a horrific feeling, but I just remember saying, God, help us, please. It was just such a helpless feeling. Uh, at that point, I just had a feeling like we're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. It just came over me like you're going to be okay. And I looked up, and here came a Huey helicopter. We weren't even scheduled for air support. It flew right over us, and then it flew towards the village where, the, where we, we have very strong assumption, every reason to believe. That's where they were launching it from. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, the mortifier stopped. Once the helicopter start, started flying towards that village, the mortar fire stopped, and we were able to get to Aditha Dam uh, safely, but uh, that incident right there was one of the main incidents that sent me into a downward spiral after getting home, and I had no idea it was doing it. Uh, there, there were some other incidents, too, but, but that was, like, the closest call to me dying, and I still to this day am just like, I'm so lucky to be alive, That's but... A- the my relationships were deteriorating. I was uh, very judgmental towards civilians. I said they don't know what we've we've been through and look how they're just living their life complaining about the silliest things. Mm-hmm. And then I just had negative and paranoid thought patterns. I would uh I became hyper vigilant as all get out. Like everywhere I went, there was a threat. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, it was bad. And then a year after getting home. In 2005, so a year after being home from the 2005 deployment, my dad uh, said to my brother and I, because my brother was pretty much going through the same thing, he said, I'm losing you, and I can't lose my family. And it hit me right there. I said, wow, it's not everybody else. It's me. I'm not who I was prior to that deployment. Now, for my dad to say that, I took it to heart. And I, I didn't defend myself. I, I did not make excuses. I said, okay. And he said, I know of someone who a friend of mine has recommended. Let's get you in there. And uh, it was amazing. Neurolinguistic programming. This doctor, um, Dr. Bob, he actually wrote an excerpt in my first book, Mental Health Fight of the Heroes in Blue. But he treated my brother and me and my brother's gone public on the radio before talking about that. So I, I didn't just break any confi- confidentiality <laughs> thing. But anyway, uh, he treated us. And after two-hour session uh, with him, with me and him, the nightmares went away. The flashbacks went away. I was able to sleep better. And I was on the road to recovery. It was absolutely amazing. And, he, and, he, and what happened was I didn't have to talk about the incident over and over and say, you know, and get asked, how did that make you feel? Uh-huh. So I didn't have to relive the emotions. Instead, he was able to program my brain so that I didn't associate any emotions with the incident. For the first time, and after that appointment, I was mentally home. I was Love mentally that. and physically home, and it was such a relief. So any, so please allow me this. Any, Allow me to say this, please. Uh, to any veteran who's just tired of—, of being physically home, but not mentally home. I don't care if it was 20. You've been battling this for 20 years. Find the right therapist. Find the right professional doctor who can help you. I, I, I thought, you know, oh, it's weakness and all this kind of stuff. No, we have to push past that initial thought and use the confidence and courage to sit down somewhere and make a commitment to getting better. Now, obviously, I'm a big fan of neurolinguistic programming, but all that pain that you're going through and all the thinking of something and reliving it, that creates, that can create a bad personality of someone who's hooked to their past and not creating a vision for their future. You don't deserve that. You don't deserve to live in your past. You deserve to create a future that you want for, your, for, for yourself, your family, your friends, whoever. And I was able to get into that, and I was able to get into that NLP doctor's office and it changed my life forever. I'm not saying every day has been great since, mm-hmm. heck no, but- The ability to disassociate and not relive the incidents, absolute game changer.
1: I love hearing that. I'm going to take a short break because I want to talk about reintegration into civilian life uh, after the military. Because And that that's a perfect segue into that. And then I want to talk more about um, you know some of the things that you're doing. And I want to talk about exactly what you were just mentioning, uh, that there is hope out there, man. Don't, don't think that there's not. Don't think that I have to live right. this way every single day. So um, let me take a short break. As soon as we come back, let's talk about reintegration and, and finding that sense of purpose. We'll be right back.
0: Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com.
1: Scott uh welcome back. I appreciate you again taking the time to talk to us today. Um you just touched upon something right before the break that is uh near and dear to my heart and the reason that we do this show and that is um literally one reintegrating back into society and finding that sense of purpose, but number two um understanding that there there is truly help out there. I mean, I, I know that I've heard other people said in the past that there's you know there's no cure for post traumatic stress. Well, uh, I don't know if I fully believe that, but that being said, there may not be a cure, but there's definitely hope and there's definitely a way to make tomorrow better than today um, as it relates to PTS. And so uh, let's talk more about that. Um, Obviously, uh, I'm guessing that you struggled a little bit when you were, you know, got back from your deployment in 2005 and then you were trying to reintegrate into civilian life.
2: Oh, yes. Prior to my dad saying that, uh, profound statement to me and then me getting the help with the neuro linguistic doctor. Uh, yes. Uh, th- it got so bad that there was one point during summer school of 2006 where I had a flashback. I went back to that mortar incident and, uh, I, I all of a sudden looked up at the chalkboard at, in the college classroom and I was like, wait a minute, what, how long was I out? Mm. Uh, it was, uh, I went to the school counselor's office right after, and they were like, you had a flashback. But of course, I was like, oh, well, you know, maybe it'll just go away with time. I didn't really take it seriously, but I had a legitimate flashback. I, I wasn't on the floor, you know, yelling or anything like that, but mentally, I checked out bad.
1: And you don't know uh, how long that I, happened, right? I mean, you. No, just... I had no idea how long I was out. I, wow. I, I had no idea. Uh, yeah, I, I had I, no idea how long I was out. I interviewed a veteran um, who did the exact same thing, and he happened to be on an airplane. And he checked out and ended up, unfortunately, and is by by no means is he proud of this, but he he ended up taking on a, a flight attendant and an air marshal and came to and didn't even realize what had happened. I mean, and people look at this and you know, as a civilian, like you said, we're, we're quick to cast judgment, right? We look at somebody and oh, right. they must be, they're they got their own. Mental issues, or they must be nuts, or something. You you have no idea what these men and women go through on a daily basis to just try and feel normal. I mean, literally. And uh, gosh, as someone who's who's studied this in the last seven years, um, I, I I I can't say that I haven't fallen victim to this because we're all quick to judge. You go to a restaurant, you go someplace, and somebody's acting out or something, and, and the first thing you think of, ah, oh, they must be crazy. They must be, you know what? Um, I, I've tried to better myself, better my son, better my wife, our family, and just say, "Hey, give that person the benefit of the doubt before you cast judgment." And um, man, it's so hard. <laughs> it is. It's. It's. But but there's hope, and you you led on to that. And can you tell me more about uh, the treatment that you went through and and how it helped you reintegrate, or how it helped you from a, a, a mental standpoint?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh For one, and like I previously mentioned, I wasn't reliving mentally the incident that almost took my life. i If I thought about it, it was more of a third person point of view rather than first person living it. So I hope that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there It was total disassociation, which was great. That enabled me to start living my life again and start planning for the future, because I was not so wrapped up in a personality dwelling on the past. So, And then and then after I got the help with neuro-linguistic programming, I was able to focus on, all right, what do I want to do with my life? And so I graduated college and then got into law enforcement. I was thrilled, thrilled about that. But it also helped in the sense of not holding such a grudge on people because they don't understand what we went through because they, most people haven't gone through the military. How do you expect them to know what we, we didn't know what we went through prior to being in the military. So I really had to drop that negative. I had to drop it. And when, and when athletes and singers get all these accolades and everything, it, it can, you can be like, what, in the, what, what, but, once again, I had to drop that. It wasn't doing me any good. Uh-huh. It wasn't doing me any good at all. And the thing I didn't know up until like after being a cop for more than 10 years, our brains just by innate wiring attached to negative. You don't have to put any effort into being negative. Your brain will do it for you. Uh-huh. And I didn't know this. The military, the military never taught us this. Uh-huh. And, 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 uh, so that's just it. You, you, you have to think what negative thoughts or negative thoughts about negative experiences are holding me back from gardening constructive thoughts, inspirational thoughts that also can help our bodies as well. Because when you, when you relive something, your body essentially can relive it as well. The cortisol fires off, adrenaline fires off. You're essentially reliving it physically as well, uh-huh. and your body can essentially become addicted to it, used to it, and and you try to feel different, and it. People are fearful of, of changing. Uh-huh. It's really crazy, but, but I changed for the better, and I'm glad I did only because I put in the effort, and I was assisted by the doctor and and many other people, but, I'm not going to knock the assistance by any means, but I'm glad that it was able to help me create. More of a vision for the future, and then also help me to drop this negative attitude on the civilians.
1: So let me ask you this: <clears throat> before your dad came to you and said, "Hey, listen, son, you're you're kind of broken. Both you and your brother, and we need to fix you." You knew you were broken, right? I mean, you you. But you just got done saying that it was me, and and was your mind telling you something different at that time? Like you came back, you knew that you weren't the same person who left before the deployments. Um, but did you? were you struggling to figure out, you know, what is it that made me different? Did you just feel like, I feel like I'm normal. What do you mean? I'm different. You know what I mean? Did you see it or no? I I saw that, that
2: I was having these flashbacks that I was not like every day I would think about Iraq. I I realized that wasn't right, but I didn't know that I was becoming this cynical person, Mm. this judgmental person. I, it was everybody else. They were the problem, Mm. not me (laughs) until dad said something. So in that regard.
1: See, that's interesting. And, and so dad obviously had did his homework and, and found you guys some, some help, uh, with, with this doctor. And, um, what can you tell me about the treatment process itself? Well, uh, he had me talk about the incident, but I was
2: talking about it. And then he said, okay, see yourself in that Humvee right before those mortars come down on, on y'all or close by. He said, uh, picture yourself. Do you see yourself? And I said, yeah, I see n- me there. He's like, no, 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 no. Do you see yourself? Look at yourself. Step out. What, what do you see? He had me describe what I looked like and all this from a third-person view, like me looking at me mm-hmm. from a third-person perspective. And then, he said, uh, th- and then he said, all right, the mortars are coming down. How do you feel? How does that person you're looking at feel? I said, well, scared, helpless, pissed off, all these emotions. And basically, he had me talk through every single negative emotion. And since I'm Christian, he was able to say, have me attach those emotions to being loved by Christ. And it totally disassociated the negative impact that was having on me. Uh, and he said, all right, you think about the incident again, who do you feel like, who, who, who's with you there? And I was like, well, Jesus. And he said, okay. And it was amazing. It was an amazing process. And for everyone, it's different. I'm not saying you, you have to be a Christian for this to work. Absolutely not. Everybody has like their, their higher emotion they seek, their higher calling that they seek, their higher belief.
1: And he was able to attach that experience I had with the higher belief. It was pretty incredible. I love it. I love it. Um, there's an organization out there called 220. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. Um, and, and with
2: Yes, I've actually uh, gotten uh, help from them, too, because I had some trauma resurface uh, about a year or two ago. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fully uh, on board for 220. They helped.
1: I I completely agree with you. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, I've been sending veterans to twenty-two zero now for over a year uh, with Dan Jarvis and his crew and um, with their TRP therapy, their trauma resistance protocol, along with their EMT uh, emotional uh, stuff, and and it absolutely works. I can't explain why, I can't explain how, but you have to trust in the process, and you have to realize that our brains are extremely powerful organisms. And um, we own, we all just use a very small portion of our brain, right? And so um, if you think yep. about it, it makes perfect sense, right? Our brains are hard drives. They they write, sight, smell, taste, sounds. Everything that's associated with trauma in our lives gets written to the hard drive, right? Um, why mm-hmm. can it not be rewritten, right? It, it doesn't make any sense. So that's what they do, and, and, and the process that you just described— all it really does is detaches the emotion from the trauma. The trauma happened the way that it happened. You can't change that, right? I mean, that you can't change right. history. However, you right. can change the way that you feel about that trauma. Yep. And by doing that... And the, go ahead. yep, And the meaning behind it. Yes. And, and by doing mm-hmm. that, it literally frees you from post-traumatic stress in a sense right it, it's it may not be yeah. altogether gone like you said there's still days that are hard and still days that you struggle but the reality is is you can now think about that event and not get triggered um and and so right. it's pretty damn amazing that we can reprogram the brain and this is proven scientifically this isn't just us you know spewing a bunch of things that we think is correct that it's not
2: the woo-woo stuff
1: right right <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, they 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 literally have proven that they can um, make tomorrow better than today. And and if it's it's literally administered via Zoom call, at least with twenty two zero, it is. And I, I don't know if you had to actually go physically see the doctor or not. But um, you had mentioned one of the most important things, and that is, it's not prolonged therapy that they they issue through the VA, where you've got to relive this thing over and over and over and over again. You don't uh-huh. even have to share yeah. this information with. The, the coach or, or the, the the psychiatrist or psychologist that's that's administering the, the trP therapy you don't even have to you don't have to share what it is you can if you choose to but you don't have to um relive every waking moment and do it multiple times you may do it in your own mind right you're not having to share it with somebody right. but you may have to relive it in your own mind but it's only so that they can erase the emotion that's associated with it and
2: um I don't yeah, know exactly man. and that was that was great for me where I didn't have to. Well, it was the same with the NLP. I didn't have to talk about the story over and over and over again. It's it's incredible.
1: It really is. And 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 I know it sounds like smoke and mirrors and hocus pocus and voodoo, but the reality is, is that it works. Um, I don't know that I can necessarily because I'm not a doctor explain why it works, but I'll, all I can tell you is that it works. Um, we've sent multiple uh, i i'd say over a hundred veterans now to to 22 and and I would truly say a hundred percent of them have found relief whether they've been cured or not i won't say that but i will tell you that they found relief and and isn't it worth 20 minutes or a half hour of your time to make tomorrow better than today uh, if you can find some relief even a little bit of relief without the use of medications and anything like that i mean it's uh' again, I go back to any any veteran or any veteran family member, right? Because, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, this this thing called PTSD goes down through the generations with your spouses and with, with children. And uh, we want to help all of that. And and the good news is, is that there's organizations like us that pay 100% for it. So um, it's not offered through the VA. Um, if you don't have private insurance, it, it doesn't matter. We pay 100% for it. So it's uh, it's important that people understand there's there's options out there. Just seek them out. Oh, yes,
2: definitely options for professional care. And there's options that you have as a person to grow your mindset and your body to, to get you ready for the, the challenges that lie ahead and the ones you're going through. Uh, we are more we are more capable. We are stronger than we give ourselves credit for. And we have the brain uh, to, to change that can change, that can rewire in a way that can help us as we continuously take massive action and it's all worth it. Every bit
1: of it. Amen to that. Amen to that. Before we move on to the, the, the last segment here about life after the military, I would just, or, um, you know, after transitioning out of the military, I wanted to find out h- how did you get into uh, law enforcement? What do you think it was because of your military training that led you into law enforcement?
2: No, I, I, the military training definitely helped, uh, when I, when I did get into law enforcement, my sophomore year in high school, I went to a career fair and I talked to the police recruiter of my hometown and it was like God slapped me in the back of the head and just was (laughs) like, you're going to be doing this. So uh, I just felt a calling to it. Uh, But I knew I wanted to uh, go through the Marines first and then go into law enforcement. Uh, And so that's what got me interested in it. And I did uh, my senior year in high school. I did a ride along which sold me and then I did an internship where I did numerous ride-alongs and each time it was just like, yep, this is for me. This
1: is for me. Cool. Um so let me ask you this. I, a lot of the veterans that I talk to coming out of the military, they they have a hard time finding their sense of purpose, right? Um after the military, I I guess there's there's no job that's going to um uh, give you the same experiences that you are feeling out on that deployment and out on that, that convoy, that, that type of thing. And so they come back here and they feel a little bit lost, right? They don't have a sense of purpose. And so um, that being said, did you experience any of that or did you already, because you knew you were going to get going to get into law enforcement, did you feel like you had that sense of purpose?
2: I did. I, I felt like the purpose was there for law enforcement and I was able to pursue it and, and I was grateful for it. To anyone who feels that they don't have a purpose and they, they feel lost in a way, first off, don't get on to yourself about it. it. You're only human. Mm-hmm. But the bad thing is if you stay there right. <laughs> rather than uh, taking action. So recognize what interests you. What do you like doing? Who are you? Are you an energetic person? Are you an outgoing person? Are you... Uh, service-oriented person? Are you a technical skilled person? Who are you? And and find out a way how you can benefit a company that benefits customers or how you can personally provide value to people through speaking or or uh, writing or, or anything. Being a counselor, going back, to, going into school and learning how to be a counselor or something like that. I mean, there's a wide range of things, but it's just what are your strengths and how can you pursue what you're what you're passionate about in the sense of your strengths and what interests you there's, and there's more out there than you think. And fortunately you don't have to do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. Like I know Richie Thomas, he's, he's a, uh, a former vet, he's a military veteran and he's a transition coach for, for veterans. I mean, they're out there. They can, they can help you channel uh, your focus into what you can do next. And, and I'm grateful for these coaches, these uh, transition coaches.
1: Amen to that um and that being said, another thing too is is um don't isolate right because that's the first thing we want to oh, do. Oh, hundred percent that's one
2: of the that is one of the worst things anybody can do is isolate, like I said earlier uh i have I've recently learned that a lot of happiness d- depends on good relationships with
1: people mm-hmm. and so please do not isolate please absolutely get into the outdoors man, and uh, there's a lot that God has to offer to us uh, as it relates to Uh, fishing, potentially hunting, I mean, whatever, hiking, camping, you name it, stay outside, get in the outdoors and, um, uh, you know what I mean, clear your head. Uh, It's just one of those things where that's where you're going to find the answers to to, to the questions you just got done saying, what is it that I want to do with my life, right? What what makes me, what right. motivates me, what makes me tick, what makes me want to move on and and and, and make tomorrow better than today for myself? Um, you're going to find those answers in the outdoors. I got news for you. That's where you're going to be able to, to do it. It's not going to be secluded in your basement, at the bottom of a bottle, um, any of those things. It's just not going to be there. And so, uh, man, right. we, we got to keep our vets in the outdoors and, and keep them... Uh, you know, keep that mindset going. Um, one last question before we, we take a quick break, and that is uh, regarding post-traumatic stress. Um, obviously, you suffered from it. Um, do you feel like you still suffer from it today, in a sense? Not so much reliving the experiences, but the hypervigilance, yeah.
2: it's mm-hmm. It's something I have to be aware of. It's something I have to acknowledge, and it's something I have to take action on in the sense that don't let these negative hyper thoughts of there's a threat. There's a threat. There's a threat. What mm-hmm. if there's a threat? What if it, I'm not saying I'm, I get, compl- I'm not saying I'm, I'm trying to strive towards complacency, <laughs> mm-hmm. particularly nowadays where it doesn't feel like society's getting any kinder out there, yeah. but, uh, there's not an inevitable threat everywhere I go. And my psychologist at the VA, when I went through a treatment program, she actually said, she said, yeah, you say there's a threat everywhere. Um, Scott, when you're using the bathroom, are you, are you analyzing for threats? I said, (laughs) no. She said, see, you have the ability to not be so hypervigilant. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, good point.
1: (laughs) Wow. All right. We're going to take a quick break. As soon as we come back, Scott, would you mind sharing with us what you're doing now uh, after 15 years of law enforcement and, uh, and, you know, many years in military? Uh, If you don't mind, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I know you've written some books, you've got your own podcast going. Uh, Let's talk about that. that. Does that sound good? That sounds great. All right. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back.
0: Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Wiley X Sunglasses. Wiley X is a family-owned company founded by U.S. military veteran Miles Freeman Sr. with a focused determination to create the world's best protective gear for those that protect our country. Over 35 years ago, Wiley X was born on the battlefield, Today, Wiley X continues to pioneer protective eyewear and sunglasses, not only for our military, but for consumers as well. Visit www.wileyx.com and support the companies that support our veterans. We're talking to scott medlin
1: Uh, scott thanks again for uh taking the time to to talk to us today and share your story it's uh it's amazing uh it really is i'm I'm so proud of you and and your service to our country and your and your brothers Uh, i mean it just means the world to us and so again i know i i keep saying it but thank you
2: (laughs) oh I, i i it's an honor to be on the podcast it really is and i hope that at least one person who hears this who might be in a bad place we're just kind of struggling. No matter how long it's been since your last deployment or military service, whatever. Just uh, hopefully, there's a little bit of uplifting hope.
1: Amen to that. Amen to that. So, talk about uh, life after the military. What's uh, I, I know that um, you've got your own website, um, www.thescottmedlin. Uh, it's dot com. Um, tell us a little bit about that.
2: All this started because unfortunately I didn't take care of myself mentally uh, uh, vigilantly at all uh, throughout my career in law enforcement. And I had a lot of mental health ups and downs because I would say and believe the term I'm fine. Mm. Uh, so unfortunately I battled an addiction, I battled more post traumatic stress and uh, around 2016 I was pretty much in the prime of my career my my police canine and I that I'd been working with for 3 years we were we were doing great we were finally getting consistent and I was loving it and the job unfortunately became my identity and uh, it got to a point where my wife one day when we were driving down the road she said I'm having thoughts of leaving you wow. now all, all the warning signs were there I just didn't take them seriously enough but basically I had to resign from canine and a dream was shattered because of my because of me becoming someone who I should have never become because of me becoming a consumed police officer, but someone consumed in the job. And unfortunately it led to me having to resign because I, I wasn't going to lose my wife over a career. Right. Forget that. Uh, I'm the, the family first. Yeah. And uh, so, so I did that. And then for a year I, I struggled. I, I, I didn't have that purpose feeling. I didn't because I didn't know about finding out what interests you or, what what gets you up in the morning so far as your personality and what you like doing those kind of things and i went back to dr bob because i was lost and he said yeah he said it was pretty traumatic for you to lose your dog like that and i unfortunately became resentful towards my wife a little bit for a year and and then in 2020 i learned that more police officers are dying by suicide and that enraged me because one it's happening two I had been on the job for more than 10 years and that's the first time I had learned it. So I thought to myself, wait a minute, mental health is clearly a battle we're, we're fighting and you didn't, it, it was like, there was no training about it. I didn't even know about it. Who knows if mental health would have been front and center just as much as training to survive a traffic stop would have been, how different my life would have been, how different many other police officers would be going through the career. Uh, it, it just enraged me. So I said, I'm going to get in on this fight to bring these numbers down. And I haven't looked back. I've been doing it ever since. And I've, I've written four books. I've got a podcast, a YouTube channel, which is slowly but surely growing. Uh, but um, I've been blessed to speak from coast to coast to police officers and other first responders and public safety uh, professionals. And it's been great because I don't do death by PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. I, I tell them my story. I, I give them information that we all should have been taught about. And I give them practical steps moving forward. And I challenge them. I just don't say, all right, here's what you can do and good luck. No, I say it's up to you when you walk out these doors to act differently in a way that addresses whatever you're facing because we're we're, we're humans. We can never be perfect. So we always have to work on growing and strengthening ourselves as as people, and that can only benefit our family, our friends, and the public that police officers swore to protect. Uh, So that's what I'm doing right now, and and, uh, I will continue to do it.
1: God bless. That's awesome. Uh, and I'm hoping that, uh, by doing so you are able to save your marriage.
2: Yes. Yeah. We, we went to counseling, we got through it and it's, it's been, a, it continues to be a blessing. Good marriage takes work Oh
3: yeah,
2: and it's worth every bit of the work. Yeah. Marriage takes work, but it's worth every bit of the work. And, uh, yeah, we do, we we did, you know, pull through and I'm glad we did. And, it's been it's been great.
1: I'm I'm so glad to hear that. that that's awesome. Let's let's talk about your podcast. Uh, it's called the Ten Code Mindset. Tell me a little bit about that. What does uh, each episode entail?
2: For the most part, it's just a podcast and a YouTube channel to help keep police officers alive and thriving. But what are police officers? Same as everyone else, Human. Mm-hmm. So I have, I'm basically talking about human aspects that can help us to leave this whole survival mindset that so many people have. Oh, I just got to get through the day. I just got to get through the day. And, and, and you're, we're reacting constantly to our circumstances in life rather than creating kind of how we, what we want to do, how we want to be to our fullest potential. Now, th- none of these things come overnight.
3: Nope.
2: I, I, trust me, none of these things come overnight, but they're totally worth uh, making the endeavor towards. And it, I mean, this led me to, I mean, writing the books, speaking across the country and um, essentially uh, having resiliency that I never thought possible. All these things are worth it. And yet I bring on people on the YouTube channel and the podcast that are in the same kind of area to teach inspiration or make us aware of the mental health thing. Um, But we also talk about police current events or practical police questions. But once again, these things uh, for, for the mental health side and the, The thriving mentality—it's—it's for humans. I mean, it's just—it's for everybody. Because I don't want people to wake up and think, "Crap, another day. Well, maybe I'll be happy when I retire." Come on, that means you're willing to be miserable until you retire. In which case, you're so wired to be miserable once the newness of retirement wears off, you might go—you're probably going to go back to being miserable. (laughs) So, I want—I want to change the way we think uh, ov- overall as a society, as a profession. And that's what the 10 code mindset's all about thriving.
1: I, I love it. Um, has some of the more recent, uh, negativity regarding our police officers, has that played a, a major role in some of the things that you've, uh, how you approach things as far as, you know, defund police and, you know, obviously I support the men and women in, in, in blue. And, and so I was just curious if that has, how that has affected your, uh, role.
2: Yes, it's, it's made it ever more important because police officers feel scrutinized for everything they do, even if they do something right. Mm-hmm. I am not by any means supporting those that exceed their authority, that abuse their, you know, use excessive mm-hmm. force, are unprofessional and, and, and downright unethical, I'm not supporting any of that. I, get out of the profession before you make the rest of us look bad.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and, uh, but at the, at the same time, when there's the blanketed negative immediate attention When there's honestly a lot of lack of leadership within the departments and and, and police officers just don't feel supported at all. That's where I try to tell them, you be your support, you be your support. And if you've done everything you can do and you're still in a bad place, mentally, physically, you don't have to settle for misery. You don't have to, if you need to leave the profession, go ahead and do it. There's many people who've never worked as police officers. They're doing just fine. So, um, that that's what I try to c- convey uh, during these these hard times. But but I also say when you're strong in who you are and what you're doing uh, through the service of working as a police officer, the, the outside noise shouldn't be detrimental to you. Because I remember in 2014 when the the lie of hands up, don't shoot was spread all across the country and it went viral. And I was I was out at houses. Like one time in particular, we surrounded a house and a guy that was warrant, and there were who we, we had a warrant, and there were people driving by yelling, "Hands up, don't shoot!" Huh. And I knew who I was and what I was doing, and I was doing the right thing. It, it, yeah, okay, it was annoying, but it, it wasn't just just demoralizing. So I say, strengthen your inner working, your mindset, so the external noise doesn't take that much of an effect on you and, Uh, Ultimately, we can't settle for the opinions of others. You have to settle for growing as a person and working towards doing the right thing and helping others along the way. Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. I know in addition to your podcast, uh, you've written a couple of books. Tell us a little bit about those books. Well, I wrote
2: Mental Health Fight of the Heroes in Blue in 2020 after it it enraged me to learn for the first time that more police officers were dying by suicide in the sense that I learned it for the first time that, that had been going on. So I I dove into the fight by writing that book, and then it mainly just talked about the basic wiring of the brain, how none of us as people are designed (laughs) to, like our brain, it it seeks to conserve energy. It it, it Mm -hmm. seeks the negative all in an effort to protect you. As I said earlier, you don't have to work on being negative. Your your brain's pretty much wired for it. Uh, So it, it talked about the innate wiring of the brain. And then uh, risks and symptoms to be on the lookout for, just as much as police officers have to be on the lookout for external risk, external factors uh, on the job when you're on a call. Uh, you need to be aware of what's going on in your mind and body because it could be it could mean the, uh, an indicator of something bad is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go into solutions. But I didn't do. As many solutions in that book, I did the solutions like health tips in uh, 101 t- uh, Health Tips for Police Officers, to which obviously anybody can read it, and get a slew of ideas to how to improve and maintain good health. Um, and then uh, if you <laughs> just like any of us, if you fall off the bandwagon of, of health and you can get right back on it through, oh. through the to through the guidance of that book. And then I wrote Truths Beyond the Police Academy because I realized there were some things I wish I would have been told at the police academy. So I wrote that book for the younger audience or the the newer uh, officers. And then uh, recently, within the last year, I released uh, 101 Useful Tips for Rookie Police Officers because, unfortunately, we have such a uh, staffing issue across the country that we have younger officers, newer officers training newer officers. Mm -hmm. It's not good. So I thought to myself, well, I had all those years of experience. Might as well put my 10-plus years uh, perspective on it into a book to, to give resources to these and the information to these newer officers getting into the profession. And there were other experts and longtime law enforcement veterans who also chipped in and, and gave their input in the book as well. And th- they're featured in the book uh, and that's it. So I'm, I'm working on the next one now thinking about what it's going to be, but um, those are the books and I, I speak about them all across the country.
1: Well, good for you. And thank you for doing that. Cause it's super important. And and you just touched upon something that I think is extremely important. And that is the, the lack of, you know, the younger generation wanting to get into this profession, probably again, I'm assuming it's because of all the negativity that's been, you know, spewed throughout the country over the last several years. And, um, you know, law enforcement is, is the necessary evil. And, and, it pains me to to watch some of the things on on the media because uh, those same individuals who uh, who who want to s- spew the hate and and all that against the our men and women in blue are the first person to say you know in, in the event something were to happen to you what's the first thing you're going to do well I'm going to call the police well, what the <laughs> hell do you mean right I mean it, right. it's completely right. contradictive. and so <laughs> it just yeah makes I just no read sense. about.
2: Some- I just read about a San Francisco council person or supervisor or something like that who voted to defund in 2020. Now she's begging for more police in her district.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. And again, I, I don't want to get political by any means, and, and it's not what this show's about. It's just right. about li- literally, though, making sure that people understand, again, uh, understand how important of a role that the, the men and women in blue play in our lives. And, and hey, I always say, you know, it's not until you need them that you miss them. Right. And that's the thing. I mean, imagine yeah. making that 911 call when you're in despair and something's happening in, in your neighborhood or to your children or something like that, and not having that man or woman to, to show up and defend you. I mean, it just, it's scary. So yeah. that's a whole po- other police show. Police are needed.
2: Yeah. Right. Right. But police are needed and police need quality training without quality training, which is lacking across the country and, a lot of areas, unfortunately, and they'll get the training, but we need very good quality training because you want very good quality officers showing up. Yes, uh, and that and that takes money. So, uh, yeah, it takes a lot of money, dedication, and and uh, hopefully the culture will shift and and get back more t- behind law enforcement so that uh, so we can have some law and order back. It's just very important, yeah. and uh, yeah. and we can all focus on uh, helping each other as people. Amen
1: to that. Um, Hey, I, I certainly appreciate, again, you taking the time to talk to us and sharing your, your struggles with PTS. Um, you know, to any U.S. military veteran member, family member, um, law enforcement, uh, first responder, anyone who who's struggling with post-traumatic stress out there listening to the show, what would you say to them?
2: I would say acknowledge that you're human. Don't avoid shaming yourself. But you got to acknowledge that you're human. And humans have to grow in order to get stronger. So when you grow, you have to raise your awareness. You have to raise your standards. You, you can't settle. You just can't settle for the negativity. You can't settle for letting the challenge defeat you. You can't settle for that. Raise your awareness. How are you doing? What particularly is going on within your mind and body that's holding you back from taking the next thing, which is massive action? And it, it, it's massive action overall, but it's small steps, one step at a time that can lead to a drastic change. And I'm speaking to you as proof of that. Mm-hmm. And don't, do not try to go about it by yourself. Do not. It, it's, it's, it's much better to have family, friends, someone else, or fellow military veterans you can talk to that can help get you through it. It's okay to say, I'm, I'm not doing well, what do I need to do better? It's okay, we're human. None of us are going to ever be perfect. And uh, this reminds me of a quote that I've heard from one of my favorite motivational speakers. His name is Les Brown. He said, uh, when you do what is easy, your life will be hard. But if you do what is hard, your life will be easy. So put in the work. It's worth every bit of it because you can start living and not just be in the state of survival.
1: I absolutely love it. What a great quote. That's very cool. And the other thing... (laughs) understand and notice the warning signs right how many uh, yep. people want to deny the fact that oh it's not me or i you know how much i hear that uh somebody else deserves it more than i do as far as the the treatment or the healing process right others oh, there's men or women out there that deserve it more than i do well that nothing is further than the truth if you're suffering in right. any way shape or form or capacity you deserve to be better tomorrow. That's all there is to it. And 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 again, I go back to, you know, whether you're at the tip of the spear on the battlefield or you're in a horrible car accident, there's trauma of all different kinds out there. And uh, there's not a person mm-hmm. walking the face of this earth that doesn't have some form of trauma and some form of post-traumatic stress. I, I mean, uh, it, it is what it is. And so that being said, don't ignore the warning signs. If If you've had to stop and think about it, that means that you probably need the help, right? I mean— Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you agree yeah, with that? 100%. All oh, 100%. Yes. Cool. Well, any parting words uh before we 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 wrap up here? I just want to say once again it was great to be on the podcast Jay to anyone else
2: uh, to to the listeners. Uh, it's been great talking to you and I hope that uh something I said was uplifting or if not made you laugh about or, or reminded you of a funny boot camp story or whatever the case was. <laughs> well, scott, Again, I, I certainly uh, yeah.
1: appreciate it. And, uh, how do people get in touch with you if they'd like to uh, hire you as a motivational speaker or, or hear more about your, your, your podcast, your book, um, you travel in the country, sharing the wealth.
2: Absolutely. My email is Scott at the Scott Medlin.com, but you can go to the dot where you can actually get a, free mental survival guide. And then uh, y- everything's pretty much on the website, but yes, get in touch with me. It will not be death by PowerPoint. <laughs> you will leave challenged, you will leave challenged, but inspired and have great information to understand uh, just how much you can live towards your potential.
1: Amen to that. And on that note, uh, Scott, I just want to say thank you again for, for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, life's a journey. Sometimes uh, it can be a struggle, but there's always someone, something, some place out there, some organization that wants to help. So however you want to seek out help, make sure that you, uh, you research it and seek out the help because uh, it, it is out there. Post-traumatic stress, as we mentioned, is a silent killer, but there's ways of healing. Um, If you'd like more information on today's podcast uh, or more information on the Operation Healing Heroes TV show, visit uh, OperationHealingHeroes.org. And until next week when we feature another U.S. military veteran story, I hope everyone has a great week.
0: This week's nonprofit of the week is Boulder Crest Foundation. Boulder Crest understands trauma and stress. We know that traumatic stress is debilitating. Our mission is to help struggling veterans, first responders, and their families rediscover hope, purpose, and a belief in a future that is truly worth living. Our team at Boulder Crest uses the science of post-traumatic growth to train participants through a proven process of transformation. We transform pain into purpose and struggle into strength. Visit our website at www.bouldercrest.org for more information. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com and by Great Clips. The world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips. It's gonna be great.